Welcome to the History Hotline, a direct line to a better understanding of all things Black history and beyond. Welcome to episode 130 of the History Heartline. My name is Deanna Lincook and I will be, as always, your host today. Now, today's episode is about Benjamin Zephaniah. Um, it's about his life story, his activism and all the things he stood for in his life um, and why they are even still important um, as we think about him and his legacy as he unfortunately passed away uh, on the 7th of December 2023. Now, this episode was kind of one that I've been working on it had been in the works um you know since we heard about the passing of Benjamin Zephaniah unfortunately last year um but I it just didn't really feel right to release it at any point until about now um and it's quite interesting because every time I've kind of looked into the episode and, and the notes and thinking about how we present it in a podcast form I've found that the relevance of it, you know, whether we're speaking about the things that he cared about and was so passionately standing up for in his life through his writing and through his works, it's kind of stood to be true at a multitude of points. And I know it's only been, well, just under two months since he has passed away, but the things he stood for are just so topical and remain so important that I think even if this episode came out in six months' time, in a year's time, five years or ten years... Um, you know, the the way he lived his life and the things he stood for, I think, would still have so much relevance. And it just speaks to the strength of his character, um, the legacy that he will leave and just how much integrity and determination he had in his life and how important that is um, for us kind of moving forwards and, and thinking about how his legacy and his work can inspire us today. Try to pigeonhole Benjamin Zephaniah at your peril. Poet, writer lyricist, musician, actor, republican, activist, campaigner, freedom fighter. It's impossible. His achievements are too plentiful to mention. That was the opening um, in an article in Birmingham Living magazine written by Shelley Carter. Um, it was undated, but I think it just speaks so perfectly uh, to Benjamin Zephaniah as a person. Um, you You simply can't pigeonhole him. Um, and it's a, the risk to you that you try. Um, you know, the list is endless to some of the things that he did and did so well. Um, I think it's it's really important not to necessarily pigeonhole um, or put Benjamin Zephaniah into a box of any sort or any size um, because his character and the things that he was able to accomplish in his life will always be bigger than that box, I think. Um, he was born on the 15th of April 1958 in Hansworth, Birmingham, and he went on to describe Hansworth as the Jamaican capital of Europe, to which I'd agree. Um, his Jamaican roots arguably inspired a lot of his work, um, especially the rhythm and flow of his poetry. He grew up as one of nine children, predominantly in Aston and then later moving to Hockley. In Hockley, um, he spoke a lot about the community spirit there, and that it was strong and everybody kind of knew each other. 
um, he noted that he lived uh, around a courtyard with shared toilets. Um, and at one point, uh, he remembered there being only one phone on the street. So if you needed to make a call, you'd borrow the phone in exchange for a tuppence. Um, he speaks a lot about the kind of community um, spirit of the places that he grew up in. Thinking about things like street parties and people sharing their toys and games um, and not necessarily having much, um, but making the most out of what they did have. Um, and he did a lot of interviews when he was alive. So we have a lot of information um, about the kind of early points of his life, um, which is quite nice, actually, to to hear someone kind of be able to reflect back. Um, he also noted throughout his childhood that there wasn't really a time where he wasn't creating poetry. Um, I would say that, like many other young children within the education system, Caribbean children especially, um, the system failed him. Um, but in other ways, him leaving full-time education by the age of 13 and him having to struggle through those years probably and most definitely shaped his work, his politics and his choices that he would go on to make in the future. And the reason he is and will always be an inspiration to our generation, ones that will follow and, you know, the ones that went before, um, is because of this, I think. He was reciting poetry in church halls by the age of 11, uh, despite having this traumatic and tumultuous relationship with school um, and, and learning in that kind of environment. Um, as he grew up, he kind of began to grow a following in Handsworth and the wider city of Birmingham. And this was quite early on in his life. He was still quite a, a young poet. He was speaking on local, national and international issues and really drawing in a crowd in his hometown. Um, his time in school was, of course, shaped um, you know, by the fact that he was dyslexic, um, which many teachers didn't know. Um, they didn't know that he had dyslexia and some didn't even know what dyslexia was or if they did, what to do about it. Um, you know, this was the 1960s and, you know, the provisions for special educational needs were, uh, yeah, lacking to say the least, I'm sure. I mean, they're not in a great place now, let alone back then. Um, he notes, and and I quote in an interview, he said, once when I was finding it difficult to engage with writing and had asked for some help, a teacher said, it's all right, we can't all be intelligent, but you'll end up being a good sports person. So why don't you go outside and play some football? I thought, oh, great. But now I realise he was stereotyping me. And I thought this was a really interesting point, um, especially thinking about some of my own research that I'm doing um, in regards to my PhD, looking at the experiences of Caribbean people in the education system, um, which is exactly what Benjamin Zephaniah um, was at that time. Uh, in the, the same time period I'm looking at. Um, and the expectations of teachers uh, for black boys, which stand today as well, um, not not to say things haven't changed, but the focus has not always shifted very far. Um, but it seems to be the case that a lot of black boys are pushed into sport um, and they are pushed into it in a sense that this is the only thing that they can be good at. Um, and whilst, you know, there might be a strong sense of athleticism within some black boys, there are clearly a, a plethora um, of, of black males as role models in sport across the UK um, and the rest of the world. Um, however, I think it's quite egregious 
when black boys are solely pushed into sport as if it's their only option for success in life when we know that's not the case um, and we also know that that isn't going to be the reality for the majority of boys that i.e might not even be good at sport at all and secondly um you know won't all quote unquote make it um but it is a pattern that i've seen a lot of black boys being told you know oh don't worry about your education by way of academics and grades and reading and maths and writing you know you're going to be a footballer or you're going to be a sports person um and it was clearly the case for Benjamin Zephaniah as well. Um, he notes that, you know, despite this, he had poems poems in his head, despite the dyslexia and the difficulties he was having, which he himself couldn't really put a finger on. Um, he said when he was 10 or 11, his sister wrote some of them down for him. Um, when he was 13, he could read, but quite basically, or so he described, um, and it would be such hard work for him that he would often give up. Benjamin Zephaniah um, notes that he was thrown out of a lot of schools um, due to arguing with teachers, behaviour, stealing a car and driving it into a front garden. That was his teacher's car, I believe. Um, I think that was after he was told that the Nazis, quote, weren't that bad um, in a classroom by a teacher. And you can kind of get a sense of, A, the racism... Be the kind of lack of understanding of what Benjamin's like learning um, abilities were based on the fact that he was dyslexic and what that the impact that was having on him in in attainment and him being able to access the curriculum. Um, it's clear that school wasn't the place for him at all. Um, however, by the time he was twenty one, he went into adult education classes um, once he'd moved to London, um, and he learnt there to read and write and also found out that he was dyslexic. Um, he didn't still, at that point, even know what it was. But once it was explained to him, he realised that, you know, he actually wasn't going crazy all this time. And it was like, you know, he got it now. He understood what was, what was happening to him. He moved down to South London in his early 20s, um, where his first book was published in 1980. Um, and in his autobiography, uh, which came out in 2018, The Life and Rhymes of Benjamin Zephaniah, he spoke about the fact that he felt, as a writer, he had a responsibility to be very vocal about the injustices of the world and also political activism. Um, but he also was quite aware of the fact that he didn't want to just preach the issues of black people to black people, um, which is how he felt when he was in Birmingham and so sought out this larger audience in London. Um, and, you know, he was able to do that and, and convert his poetry and his writing into um, this first book. He championed many causes in his lifetime. And I think as much as his poetry um, and his literature is so well remembered, because for a lot of people, well, maybe not everybody, um, but for those fortunate enough to study him in school and see him on their curriculum, whether that be his poetry or his literature, um, you know, that is kind of the first uh, instance where you kind of meet Benjamin Zephaniah, maybe as a young person, um, maybe in the library, maybe at school, maybe through, you know, your own reading and research. 
And then it's like this pleasant surprise when you you realise that his politics kind of align with yours as well and the things he thinks are important and he's talking about and writing about in his books and his poetry are also important to you. Um, And the causes he championed um, are numerous, too numerous to list, if I'm quite honest with you. Um, But I'll start with um, the aftermath of the fateful New Cross massacre. Um, in which 13 young black people were killed um, in a blaze that was suspected to be a racist arson attack. Um, And he released a song, 13 Dead, which became somewhat of an anthem of of anger, of rage, against the failure of, of the authorities to not only catch the perpetrators, but actually, I think, the way in which the media and the lack of reporting on it And the fact that it seemed like even though these 13 black children had died, nobody really seemed to care. Um, And so this anthem, you know, was part of of the movement and the campaigning. He was also an avid campaigner against racist police brutality and stop and search laws. His stop and search on trial campaign was launched in 2014. And this was in partnership with the Newham Monitoring Project, um, of which he was a patron. He consistently, consistently was so vocal um, about state racism um, by way of the police um, and continued to scrutinise the British government, institutions within it, um, about what they were doing in regards to racism, um, but also um, actively supporting other causes. He repeatedly took jabs at the British establishment and was uncompromising in his advocacy for social justice. As a black man growing up in Britain in the 50s, 60s um, and and 70s, by the time he was in his teens, um, he really did have to endure racism um, and from an early age as well. And he often spoke about that. And it made him quite the outspoken activist in regards to racism, but also colonialism and empire. And most notably, I think this all kind of came to fruition when in 2003 he turned down his honour, the honour bestowed upon him, the Order of the British Empire, an OBE. Um, And lots of people turned down OBEs. Um, Benjamin Zephaniah is the first person I knew of to have turned down an OBE. Um, And a lot of them turned down OBEs for different reasons or in some cases are kind of you know, brought into the spotlight for giving back an OBE. Um, I think one of the main reasons you shouldn't accept an OBE is because of empire Um, and kind of the exact arguments that Benjamin Zephaniah was explaining in 2003, which we all listened into shortly as I share a clip. Um, But the likes of Jon Snow, the Channel 4 news presenter in 2000 turned down an OBE or similar honour. Some of them will be... CBEs or MBEs. Um, John Lennon actually returned his following Britain's involvement in the civil war in Nigeria in 1966. Ken Loach, the director and screenwriter, turned down an OBE in 1977. Um, and later on, well, many years later, in 2001, he actually said, and I quote, it's all the things I think are despicable. Patronage, deferring to the monarchy and the name of the British Empire, which is a monument of exploitation and conquest. Um, so kind of similar arguments that Benjamin Zephaniah made um, quite publicly in 2003. And 
For some, it was really controversial, um, the fact that he was turning down this honour, something which he should be so grateful for, so thankful for, and so accepting of. Um, and he wrote about it, well, his response came out in a Guardian article titled, Me? I thought, OBE me? Up yours, I thought, um, which is a great title, came out in 2003. Um, so what I've got now is a clip taken from the ITN archives, and it's a Channel 4 news interview from the 27th of November 2003, and it's an interview with Jon Snow uh, as the interviewer, interviewing Benjamin Zephaniah and Yasmin Alibi-Brown um, and the Conservative peer Lord John Taylor. It's quite a long clip, but do tune in because I think it pulls out some of the really important threads um, in regards to reasons for turning down um, this award, but also some of the reasons people were kind of not really happy with the fact that he'd done this, um, coming specifically from the Conservative peer, Lord John Taylor. Well, I'm joined by Benjamin Zephaniah, who's in Barking in East London, and with me in the studio, Lord John Taylor and Yasmin Alibi-Brown. Uh, Benjamin Zephaniah, I mean, you regard this as a big thing and something you'd like to start a movement over, or it's just one of those things? It's just one of those things, actually. Um, I think that to... For somebody to um, offer me this uh, order of the British Empire shows me that they haven't really read my work, they don't really know what I stand for, and they have no idea of why I write. I write to connect with my people. I'm not embarking now, I'm in East Ham, and I'm in a bookshop full of people. These are the people I write for. I don't write to impress the Queen, I don't write to win awards and to get OBEs and join an Empire's Club. And is it more about empire or more about a government that's been to a war with that you didn't agree with? It's a bit of both things. I mean, if we didn't have a war at the moment, I would have still rejected it. I would have still rejected it because it has the word empire on it. We can get rid of the empire and we can do something else. We can call it something else. I think we should go to the streets of East London and Brixton and we should take people and say who has made an impact on your life and get them to say who they want to, to be honoured. We don't need Tony Blair. I've been knocking on Tony Blair's door for months now to get him to have a conversation with me and he won't. I don't need him to tell me that I'm a writer of any merit. Um, in fact, in the last few months, most of my work has been working against this war. It's been working with prisoners who have been wrongfully imprisoned. It's been working to get justice for my cousin, Mikey Powell, who's killed in a police station. You know, if you give me a, an award for fighting for a classless society, it's much better than my poetry. Right. Well, now, uh, Yasmin Alibair-Brown, there are a lot of sentiments there you might agree with, and I'm just wondering about Empire. And, of course, you are a member of the British Empire, MBE. Actually, Benjamin has really created this turmoil for, for me and I thank him for it actually I went home last night after I read this piece and I thought I felt enormously guilty I, he's made me think that I should seriously consider giving it back because his arguments are so persuasive where he's wrong is that people like me have joined the establishment I remain a rampant Republican and absolutely opposed to almost everything Tony Blair is doing but he's made me think and by this weekend, I'll make a decision about it. So, thank you. Uh, persuade her, Benjamin. Well, I, I was just told a couple of minutes ago that Yasmin had uh, MBA, and I almost fainted. <laughs> I really almost fainted. Um, <laughs> um, 
Yasmin, you don't, you don't need it. Your work is, is, is good. Your work means something to us. And you don't, I'm sure people don't meet you in the street and go, wow, you got an MBE, this makes a difference to us. Right. Um, let me, let me bring know. in uh, Lord Taylor. Um, I mean, your honour, in a sense, is a working honour, but nevertheless, uh, Empire, you can't be very happy to be um, uh, beneath this yoke. Well, I'm a fan of Benjamin's. He's a brilliant writer. He's raised an important debate. But in his article in The Guardian, he talks about his obsession with the future and not the past. We have to move on. We know the empire, in many ways, was a bad thing for black people. But in a way, this award is for his excellence as a writer. You know, future generations of blacks and whites but need to why, see why that his, black people have But why must his excellence be celebrated with an empire medal? Well, you can call it anything you want, basically. It's not going to... Benjamin is bigger than the, the name of the award. That's my opinion. What, he, what he's saying, in effect, is that by accepting this award, he would be diminished in some way. I don't think so. He'll continue to write and to speak out, and he should do that. Benjamin Zephanar? Listen, I want to criticise left, right and centre. I want to criticise the government, the monarchy, myself. If I join this club of monarchy, this club of empire, how can I criticise it? I mean, it, 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 it doesn't open well, doors. Can I give you an example? It opens I mean, Benjamin doors, does it, it some brilliant work. It opens the wrong doors. It does some brilliant work for the British Council, which is an establishment organisation. The Queen is the patron. He criticises the British Council. But the British Council is, of course, the British Council, not the British Empire, presumably, uh, Benjamin. And let me tell you something else. Let me tell you something else. I, I, I know I'm on Channel 4, and I'm going to talk about the BBC. The BBC World Service is an, is an organisation I really do respect. It used to be called the Empire Service. But they realised that they had to have a different kind of relationship with their audience. This Queen has to have a different kind of relationship with the people of East Ham. She has to have a different kind of relationship with. Uh, she has to have a different kind of relationship with her subjects, well, and, I mean, um, I, and that's I what it's about. I agree with, with, with Benjamin. And I think France has a system of honouring its citizens. We don't need this old model. I think citizens should be honoured by this nation. And honestly, Benjamin, you've made me think, and. I think I'm going to go for this. I think I might do a John Lennon and return the goods. There's a paradox here, though, uh, because Benjamin has said he wants to have a dialogue with Tony Blair. I think he's reduced his chances now of having that. You know, if you want to change a structure, listen, listen, you get inside. Tony Blair you can't does not want to talk outside. to me. I've written Tony Blair letters, many letters over the last months. And if you think that this is going to make Tony Blair say, I'm not talking to that guy anymore, it's not. He doesn't want to talk to me. He may want to talk to you. He may want to talk to you, with all due respect, he may want to talk to you because you may be part of his club. I don't know if you agree with his politics or stuff like that, but, um, but all, he all certainly I'm saying, doesn't Benjamin, want to talk to me. If you want to, to change me, a structure, a... you get involved with it from inside. It's difficult to change a structure from outside. That's the problem. Yes, Manala Brown. Well, I, don't, I think you can still fight them, and I don't think you should bother talking to Tony Blair. It, n it never is we worth it. stop talking. But, that's, but that's I terrible. think what you've said is so important. You've blown open something a kind of conspiracy and an abject cowardice on, on, on the part of people like myself. So, you know, it is an important debate. The nation has changed. We need to represent who we are better. And to talk about the empire takes us to a time which is absolutely unhealthy. Now, first of all, it's really funny to me that this debate's happening in, like, 2003 because that was, like, what, 21 years ago? And somehow I don't feel like this kind of conversation outside of social media could happen on like a news platform today without serious like weird racist backlash 
um, and people shouting words like woke and lefty and trying to change our history. Um, it's, yeah, even though, you know, people have been giving back and not accepting honours in regards to orders of, of empire um, for for decades, um, it would be, I feel like, an, a more contentious issue now than it might have been in 2003. Um, I found it quite interesting um, that it is John Taylor, Lord John Taylor, who is very much caught up with the fact that, you know, you've kind of got to accept this honour to get yourself in the room to have these conversations with the people you want to speak to. And in this case, um, Benjamin Zephaniah is referencing uh, Tony Blair. It's um, the invasion of Iraq was done by Britain on the 19th of March 2003, so months before this was all taking place. Um, as we know, the withdrawal of the last remaining British forces didn't actually happen until 2011. Um, so a very long time after it all started. And um, I don't remember so much. I think I would have been in primary school uh, when the Iraq uh, war happened, but it wasn't a clean cut, yep, let's go to war, let's defend ourselves. You know, there were so many people, uh, so many different sections of society that were so against um, this invasion, um, didn't see as as the right thing to do for Britain, for Iraq, for, you know, world order. Um, and Benjamin Zephaniah was um, a quite vocal advocate um, for Britain having done the wrong thing to go and invade Iraq, obviously following closely behind George Bush and the US. Um, and so in this case, he is there is quite a lot of reference to him having a conversation with Tony Blair. Um, and I don't know if um, the Conservative peer believes that by having <laughs> three extra letters after his name, these doors will magically open for him. Um, whilst that might be the case, as he says, you know, um, maybe Lord John Taylor's in his empire club and so would have better access. But, um, you know, will that actually, in reality, change the position, the social status of a person that accepts an OBE or an MBE? Some cases, I'm sure it might, and I'm sure that's why so many people tend to accept them. But um, I did like Yasmin... Um, alibi brown's kind of thoughtfulness on the topic you know she already had her dot 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 of 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 empire her reward um and was contemplating you know whether or not she should have it and she should have accepted it and if she should give it back and really actually kind of critically thinking about something which benjamin zeph and i really advocated for you know criticizing oneself thinking about what you've done in your life, what you stand for, and reflecting on that, really. Um, and interestingly enough, uh, Yasmin Alibi-Brown actually did return her MBE that year. Um, she said, and I quote, I was stupid once and allowed myself to accept an MBE, partly to please my mom. Then Benjamin Zeph and I ashamed me. I returned the lovely object and have had to put up with scorn ever since. Some deserved. Um, and so there we go. I think... It really does speak to um, Benjamin Zephaniah's character. And even in the exchange he has with uh, Yasmin uh, Alibi-Brown on the on the news show, he isn't, you know, disrespectful, rude. He simply states the fact that he was quite shocked that she even had one in the first place. Um, and, you know, doesn't necessarily tell her she should give it up immediately. But through conversation she kind of alludes to that and, and reaches that conclusion herself. And 
kind of gets there. Um, John Taylor in that clip also mentions the uh, Guardian uh, article. Um, and I wanted to read a little bit of it uh, just because I love it. I love it so, so much. Um, it says, I woke up on the morning of November 13th wondering how the government could be overthrown and what could replace it. Just random morning musings, you know, as you do. Sorry, that was me. That was my uh, interjection and not Benjamin Zephaniah's words. I'll go again. I woke up on the morning of November 13th wondering how the government could be overthrown and what could replace it. And then I noticed a letter from the Prime Minister's office. It said, The Prime Minister has asked me to inform you in strict confidence that he has in mind on the occasion of the forthcoming list of New Year's honours to submit your name to the Queen with a recommendation that Her Majesty may be graciously pleased to approve you to be appointed an officer of the Order of the British Empire. Me, I thought. Oh, be me. Up yours, I thought. I get angry when I hear that word empire. It reminds me of slavery. It reminds me of thousands of years of brutality. It reminds me of how my foremothers were raped and my forefathers brutalised. It is because of this concept of empire that my British education led me to believe that the history of black people started with slavery and that we were born slaves and should therefore be grateful that we were given freedom by our caring white masters. It is because of this idea of empire that black people like myself don't even know our true names or our true historical culture. I am not one of those who are obsessed with their roots, and I'm certainly not suffering from a crisis of identity. My obsession is about the future and the political rights of all people. Benjamin Zephaniah, OBE. No way, Mr Blair. No way, Mrs Queen. I am profoundly anti-Empire. Even that, the way that was penned, honestly, um, this episode, I'd, I'm not really speaking so much about Benjamin Zephaniah's writing uh, in a way that I probably should. Um, but I will say that I'm I'm just always very jealous of people that write really well and seem to do so effortlessly. Like the flow of that, a simple statement of rejection, was just so beautiful. Wow. Anyway, Benjamin Zephaniah's response, um, you know, in the article and also in the interview, um, talking about and making reference to the BBC World Service, suggesting and questioning, well, why, you know, this honours system can't see a revamp with a new name, especially considering, and a point that really stands true today is the fact that Britain literally has no empire, zero empire, and hasn't done so for decades. It is actually delusional and quite laughable, the fact that Britain still go on and hold this idea of empire so close to their hearts, this yearning for the good old days of empire is actually hilarious to me. Um, it's clearly demonstrated here. It's clearly demonstrated in the fact that the honours still have order of the British Empire within them. Um, it is ridiculous. And as I mentioned, Benjamin Zephaniah isn't the only person that turned down um, honours uh, for similar things, political issues. They didn't like the way that, um, you know, the country was handling political issues at the time. I think Yasmin uh, Alibi Brown actually uh, referenced what was happening in Iraq for her um, wanting to hand it back as well as obviously comments made. Um, Michael Sheehan, Welsh actor, famously gave back his OBE um, ahead of the Raymond Williams lecture in 2017, 
which actually caused him to research Welsh history. He said at that point he was left with no choice. Either don't give this lecture on Welsh history, which obviously probably talked about the colonisation and, and Britain's um, contribution to that and, well, his whole part in that. Um, it was that, yeah, either don't give this lecture or hold on and hold on to my OBE or, and I quote, I give this lecture and give the OBE back. Um, and I think that is actually a really important point that is being spoken about there. I think when you kind of dig into the history of empire and, and we don't do that in this country at all in schools or otherwise. But when people start actually learning about the atrocities of empire um, and the way that Britain kind of absolutely ran through this world, um, you know, taking, looting, pillaging, um, everything they needed to build up the wealth of, of this single country, um, it becomes very clear why you'd want absolutely nothing to do with it. Um, and that's me kind of, you know, not going really too far into the atrocities of empire. Scottish actor Alan Cumming followed in Sheen's footsteps uh, a few years later. Um, he was an actor, was an actor, an LGBTQ plus activist, um, and he received the honour from the Queen in 2009 um, and actually said that conversations around the monarchy and empire after the Queen's death, um, so a little bit more recently, opened his eyes um, and he said that, and I quote, the way the British Empire profited at the expense and death of indigenous peoples across the world. Doing research for this, I actually realised there's quite a few people that have either handed back or, or not accepted um, these honours and it's really, really interesting, I think, to read the variety of reasons why, not all of them linking back to empire. Some of them were simply like, um, I can't remember who it was, but... They just kind of said, I'd, I'm, I've just been doing my job, really. So this kind of big award just feels a bit over the top because I've just been doing my job and there's other people that are doing better things than me. I think it was um, Jennifer Saunders. That's the one. Yes, Jennifer Saunders. I think she said that. Um, and yeah, Dawn French and Jennifer Saunders. They used to have that show, French and Saunders. What a great show. Um, but yeah, they um, were kind of like, well, we're just, just doing our jobs in it. So it's not that serious for us to have this award. Um, and there's been a whole host of reasons as to why people don't don't accept them. Um, one of the most notable causes in my mind um, in regards to Benjamin Zephaniah was always his steadfastness in his opposition to the occupation in Palestine and his solidarity with Palestinians. And this was highlighted by a visit he made to Palestine in April 1988. So I mean by him like really standing on business because not only is he going to support Palestine, but he's actually going to go there. Um, and he went in 1988. Um, as I said, he was a patron of the Palestine Solidarity Campaign, the PSC, and he recalled, and I quote, when I was young, there were two things that I really wanted to see, a free South Africa and a free Palestine. And it's unfortunate that um, he hasn't hasn't seen a free Palestine in, in his lifetime. Um, he visited occupied Palestine in the 80s, as I said, to learn more about the Palestinian struggle for liberation under this Israeli apartheid. And to document his journey, he compiled all of his experiences into a publication called Rasta Time in Palestine. Just the wordplay, he always gets a rhyme in. He's just, oh, his mind. Um, and this came out uh, two years later, so in about 1990. Um, I think it was really nice seeing people remembering Benjamin Zephaniah for views like this and not 
whitewashing his legacy to just maybe just speak about the literature or the poetry. Um, because one thing about him was that he really stood ten toes down on what he believed in. He didn't stir, he didn't waver, he didn't falter. He couldn't be moved by pressure, by money, by power. Um, and I think some of us could do a lot to even just take a crumb of that kind of integrity um, as we as we go forward in, in the many struggles of global injustices that we're kind of faced with. Um, I wanted to, to read some of Rasta Time in Palestine. Um, and I'm reading a section that was actually shared on, on Twitter, I saw, um, but was also quite widely quoted as well. I will say before we get into the quote, um, just a trigger warning, basically there is um, descriptions of, of quite extreme violence, um, naturally, which you might be expecting, um, but just a trigger warning there. It says, apart from war itself, Shifa Hospital in Gaza must be the worst sight I have ever seen. Officially, it is a state hospital, but the taxpayers of Gaza think differently. There were two doctors who had to work for three days non-stop before being relieved. Not being a reporter, I was surprised at their willingness to show me around and also at the way injured people, uh, brackets, who were not in a coma, close brackets, pushed their injuries before my eyes. This I found very strange, as I am used to photographing the nice things in life. I found it very difficult to take pictures of burns, cuts, bullet wounds and broken legs. People were also very willing to tell me their stories, and I listened to all they had to say. The story that stays with me the most was told to me by the victim's mother, as the victim lay in a coma. The boy, aged 12 years, had been hit by a jeep driven by an Israeli woman, who then reversed back over his legs and then drove forward over his legs a third time. In the text, he also spoke about the racism he experienced at the hands of the Israeli soldiers, um, and the kind of exhale, the, the sharp exhaling of breath he could do when he would pull out his British passport, and the treatment would improve. Um, he contrasts this with the time in Palestine, and the solidarity and the hospitality of the Palestinian people, who he said treated him like a king. Um, even under this kind of crushing weight of occupation and the constant uh, levels of, of security that weren't really protecting Palestinian people, um, but, you know, policing them. He still felt that they took the time to offer him comfort in their homes, the food from their tables, um, and he definitely left Palestine with a sense of purpose and a kind of fire in his belly, as he's been described in the article I'm reading, um, and resolved to spend the rest of his life doing everything he could to help um, the cause. And this is an article from an article, um, in part, sorry, some of uh, the quotes from that, um, from Tribune magazine, and it was written by Perry Blankson, titled Us and M." the radical Benjamin Zephaniah, um, and that came out just after his uh, death last year, so on the 8th of um, December. And most importantly, his most important political stance being that of an Aston Villa supporter. <laughs> just joking. I'm not actually joking at all. It's very important. Um, and I think the fact that he was such a loyal Villa fan through very, very tough times, you know, relegation, low table, 
um, outcomes to where we are now. Um, and it's unfortunate that he can't see this this potential high finish touch wood. Let me not jinx anything. Anyway, not <laughs> me going on about football on the history podcast, but um, it was at the villa that I actually met uh, Benjamin Zephaniah and that would have been about 10 years ago when I was working there. I think I would have been in six forms, maybe university. Um, and he, I was shocked because first of all, in my head, I was thinking, why is Benjamin Zephaniah at the villa? And then I realised he was a fan and he was always at the villa. Um, but he was being whisked away really quickly. I think he was going to do some press um, for the game. And despite that and despite the people, the very important people around him or important looking people kind of shooing him on he took time to stop um and say hi to me which literally made my whole <laughs> day to say the least I remember going home and <laughs> being asked about the football and not really caring because I'd met Benjamin Zephaniah um and yeah and and talked to other fans as well that were there on the day he j- he didn't you know let those people kind of whisk him off and, and not acknowledge everybody he was so nice and so kind and I think it it really shows with all the people that have been speaking out um, in the kind of aftermath of of him passing and saying how much he was a a good friend to them or a mentor or an inspiration or that person that kind of told them to keep going when they didn't think they had anything left in them to keep pushing Um, and whether that's coming from poets or activists or people in the media, journalists, you know, he has been that person um, for so many people, so many generations as well. Um, and I think it it's really important that we have role models and, and, and people we can look up to like that who really don't waver and their integrity is just at the core of their being. Um, it, yeah, it's, it is just so, so wonderful to leave a legacy like that. And although it feels like he's definitely gone too soon, um, his his work, his words, and the way he made people feel will continue to live on, I think. Um, I wanted to, to finish this episode with a few updates and also tell you what I'm reading and what I'm watching in my new segment for <laughs> this year. Um, my first update comes from the history of... Um, the African diaspora uh, and African history, MRES, of which Professor Hakeem Adi was um, the module convener uh, and kind of founder of that course at Chichester University. During the summer, I did like an emergency episode with Professor Adi um, because he was being faced with redundancy. Um, you'll remember he was made redundant um, shortly after that. And all of his students, of which there are PhD students and students on that master's course that was cut, um, are left without supervision. They're left without somebody that has the expertise to supervise them through to finish. Um, most of them at that point would have been finishing dissertations by way of the master's students. They would have been due in about September and this all kind of started happening around June, July. Um, and then the PhD students, some of them have months to go, some of them have years to go um, and all of them are kind of stuck essentially uh, with no one to support them. They are still enrolled at the university because uh, where else can they go? 
um, and they don't have any uh, supervision. They have mounted a legal case against the university um, and there have been some kind of positive movements and updates with that. Um, but they are still needing support, financial um, and otherwise really just sharing the word. So I'm talking about it today. Um, I will leave links for the page that you can find out more information and also support the cause in the bio. So please do that if you can. Um, but more importantly, just share the word, you know, let people know this is what's happening um, within black British history and black history more widely today, you know. Um, it's 2024 and there is only one case, course sorry, in Europe that looks like this and it's gone. And I think that says a lot. Um, and if we don't kind of stand up to this fact um, and potentially try and change that and have this course reinstated or, or you know, elsewhere, brought into a university elsewhere, um, then we will have really, really lost a real hub and centre for some really great historical research that, that really could um, change the way we see ourselves and we see society in the future. In terms of what I'm reading, I'm reading at the moment Earl Lovelace's The Dragon Can't Dance, um, written, I think, published in 1979. It is for a Caribbean book club that I am um, a part of. It's the first book, and I recently started reading a lot more Caribbean fiction. Um, most of it has been more so new releases, so it would be nice to read some Caribbean fiction um, from the 70s, um, and I hope to read a lot more Caribbean fiction from all the decades and all the eras um, as this year goes on, and as I make a point to do more reading of um, fiction books. Um, I was going to tell you what I'm watching this week, but I'm not really watching anything. But in watching, seeing, um, I did go and see the Women in Revolt Art and Activism in Britain exhibition at the Tate Britain. Um, and it's an exhibition that kind of centres the experiences of women through art, from painting, photography, film and performance, um, and kind of highlights their fight against injustice, including causes such as equal pay, reproductive rights, race equality um, and it really highlights this kind of period from the 1970s to the 1990s of real change uh, for women in Britain. Um, it also includes movements such as the British Black Arts Movement and it also speaks about women's disability rights and I thought that there was some really kind of sad and harrowing stories actually included that were very necessary um and really did kind of add a richness to the experiences of women um and their lives in Britain especially at that time um it was really really necessary for painting a kind of really broad picture of, of women's activism and I think it did a really good job of that um across quite a few different themes which is always very difficult um especially in kind of a gallery space and figuring out how to to give kind of enough space and I don't just mean that physically to each kind of story and each theme but I think it did that quite nicely so that is what I'm gonna shout out I think it's until April that is the women in revolt art and activism in Britain 1970 to 1990 exhibition at the Tate Britain and that is all I will say this week 
Um, as you will be aware, if you listen to last, I won't say last week, but it's it's last fortnight's episode. Episodes do come out fortnightly now. Um, if you remember at the end of last week's episode, I said we we're going to have an episode about immigration. That is coming out in two weeks' time. Unfortunately, for the first time ever in 130 episodes, touch wood, and I'm very grateful for this. This is not me complaining, but like I had corrupted files and, and audio issues and it's never happened to me before or not in a in a really big way that meant I couldn't release the thing I had planned to release um so that will be coming out in two weeks time instead um of this week as I had hoped um but it's not the end of the world um files were kind of recovered although slightly warped <laughs> so there'll be an editing task ahead but we will get there So thank you so much for tuning in and listening to this episode. Hope you have a wonderful week and I'll see you in two weeks time. Goodbye. That's it for another episode of the History Hotline. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you listen to or tell a friend to tell a friend. To continue the conversation, follow us on social media at the History Hotline on Instagram and at the History HL on Twitter. The History Hotline is hosted by me, Deanna Lynn Cook. Research and marketing done by Zakia Riaz. Production by Waylon Mackenzie Witter. And original music provided by Royal Sounds. Sponsored by Musetopia. The History Hotline.